Well, I counted up Bibles in my house this week. That was fun. Do you want to know how many? Can you guess? 20. 20 Bibles in my house. Now, to be fair, I have a lot of children. That does not include storybook Bibles, by the way. That's good old-fashioned, leather-bound Bibles in my house. Um, so a lot of, lot of people in our, our house. I guess that doesn't explain uh, why I got to my office down the hall here and counted up an additional 17 Bibles. Um, maybe I have a problem. Actually, I was looking at my Bibles and I have two archaeological study Bibles. It's a great resource. Nobody took me up in the first service. Maybe everybody has that at home. I brought it. It's sitting on that chair. It's yours if you want it. I've got two. Take it home. So I will only have 16 Bibles in my office at the end of the service. Um, and I have two on my phone, one that I can read in any translation, and then one that reads to me in a variety of different accents, and it's wonderful. Um, we're unbelievably blessed with the access to the Word of God that we have. I heard a few years ago how people in the persecuted church would often pass around single pages of the Bible. Um, the, you know, Bibles are very hard to find in persecuted countries. The gospel spreads often like wildfire, and there's all these brand new Christians, and the Bibles are illegal in these countries, and so they're hard to come by. And so Christians from other countries would get extremely creative to get Bibles into these countries. Really fascinating stories. I think Open Door Ministries, look up some fun stories this afternoon if you want. Uh, but they would like take uh, pieces of the Bible and wrap it up and wrap fish up in it and smuggle the fish in. Um, they would stuff pages of the Bible in bales of hay and get it into these believers. And these pages of the Bible would become prized possessions. Can you imagine? A single page of the Bible. Now that got me thinking, say that, you were arrested for your faith, uh, put yourself in the shoes of your persecuted brothers and sisters for a moment, and, and you went to prison, and you didn't have access, but there's, you know, kind of a nice network, and we could get you a page. What page do you want? Like a single chapter of the Bible, we can get anything into you. What page are you going to ask for in that moment? I can say without question that if I ever find myself in that spot, do all that you can do to get Romans chapter 8 to me. <laughs> Romans 8 is the greatest chapter in the Bible. Now, don't misunderstand me. Every word in the Bible is ordained and uh, inspired by, by God himself. Um, and there are beautiful mountain ranges and beautiful peaks, but there is one Mount Everest. In my opinion, that's Romans chapter 8. And so I'm excited to study it with you this morning. I hear some page turns already. If you have your Bible, go to Romans chapter 8. We're going to look at this beautiful, breathtaking uh, promise that we have. Um, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you know that we're in, at the end of a very brief three-week series called A Walk Through Romans. My goal has not been to give you an in-depth study of Romans. I'm actually only looking at the first eight chapters it would be impossible to cover that in depth in three weeks. But here has been my goal. I'm trying to give you a couple of the landmarks so that you can walk this on your own. If we can look at some of these major moments, you can navigate it on your own and that'll change your life, especially if you're not familiar with Romans. Um, so far, we've worked, worked through chapter four and seen the necessity of walking in faith. Last week, we looked at chapter six and seen how it was important to walk in newness of life. And now we are this morning in, in Romans chapter eight. And I hesitate to call it a landmark because it feels like a destination. It feels like this is the culmination of everything that Paul has been working to. And, and it actually, as I've studied this and prepared this sermon this week, I realized that it was very difficult, almost cruel to do a flyover sermon on such a profound text. I kind of felt like the dad that loaded his kids up in the minivan and drove all the way down to Orlando and pulled right up to the gates of Disney and said, well, kids, here we are. I'm gonna sit in the van with you for about 30 minutes and we're gonna look over some maps and then we're gonna go home. Sound good? 
That wouldn't go over very well in the car. And that's how I feel presenting a little 30 minute sermon on Romans chapter eight. My encouragement to you is to live in this chapter if you don't already. Actually, I'll go even further. Why don't you memorize this chapter? I realize that the analogy I gave you is a bit far-fetched, not the part about being arrested for your faith. That is actually happening in Canada right now. And Jesus prepared us for that. What's a bit far-fetched is the fact that we can get a page of the Bible into you. And so why not hide it in your heart? My family's been doing this around dinner time. You say, I can't memorize 39 verses. Come over and watch my seven-year-olds get to verse 10. That's about where we are right now. You can do it. I wanna encourage you, if you don't have a, a scripture memorized, start with Romans chapter eight. It's a beautiful chapter. Now, we made the point last week that Romans five, six, seven, and eight, let's find ourselves in, in the argument. This is a, a unit, very important unit on what it means to be a Christian. Now that you've been justified by faith, this is what a Christian life looks like. And we saw some stunning promises in Romans chapter six. You've died with Christ through baptism, but you've been raised again to walk in the newness of life. And I made some pretty powerful claims and I don't back down on any of them. It was incredible that you have power over sin. You are no longer a slave. You have been set free to walk in the newness of life. We left the sermon last week basking in the glow of a victorious Christian life. But this is why we love Romans. Paul will take us from the glow of victory in Romans 6, and then he will immediately descend into the valley of the actual Christian experience in Romans chapter 7. If I were to set out last week and say, all right, now the application is be perfect, what would have happened? We would have come in here shaking our heads going, no, I couldn't do it, <laughs> didn't do it. And that's what Romans 7 is about. You have all these spectacular promises in Romans chapter 6, but as soon as you live out these, this victory and try to perfectly obey God, you find that you can't. That's what Romans 7 articulates. It's, it, it begins to, by talking about our relationship with the law, and it is a frustrating relationship to say the least. Like there's nothing wrong with the law, the law is holy, the law is good, and in our hearts, we really want to obey the law, but we find that we can't. There's nothing wrong with the law. The problem is our sinful flesh. Here's the thing, the law does not stimulate obedience inside of us, the law stimulates rebellion. And I think you know what I'm talking about. When you see a rule, it doesn't make you go, great, I wanna obey now. It makes you go, you don't tell me what to do. <laughs> Here's an example that might get me in trouble, but I'll, I'll go with it anyway. Um, I want you to think about your reaction last summer when the grocery stores put down arrows on the aisles. <laughs> Did you like get in there and go, yes, this is gonna make shopping awesome. I'm gonna walk like 17 miles to get my groceries now. <laughs> or did you go, you can't tell me what to do. I, I know what you did, right? Um, we have a problem. <laughs> God has set us free from sin. And yet, as we try to live in this freedom, we realize that the flesh that remains inside of us is extremely powerful. We really do wanna obey God, but we keep failing. This is frustrating. And Paul will articulate this in one of the most famous passages in the Bible. Um, look at this, verse uh, 15 of chapter seven. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I wanna do, but I do the very thing I hate. Anybody, can you raise your hand to that experience? What I hate, I do. Now if I do not, now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. 
For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. This passage makes you want to pull your hair out. And it completely describes our lives, doesn't it? Romans 6 showed us, and very accurately, and all, just completely truthfully, that the Christian life is a victorious life. But Romans 7 reminds us that it is a struggle. Again, the power of sin has been defeated, but the presence remains. And it is more powerful than sometimes we give it credit for. I suppose this is a good time to mention that there are some scholars, and and I bring up this view because I know that there are people sitting in this room right now that would have a a slightly different view on Romans 7. They would say that this is Paul speaking before he was saved. Like he jumped out of the present and then he went back and he's referring to a time before he was a Christian. I I represent that view because again, there's people in this room that believe it. You have good arguments, but ultimately, I disagree. And, and really, most of the pastors that I know too would disagree and take the view that I'm suggesting here that a mature believer can struggle with sin like this and have this frustrating relationship. I'm convinced that Paul here is speaking of the mature Christian experience. Listen, you cannot live a holy life in a fallen world with a fallen body without a struggle. It's going to be a struggle. In fact, I think that the struggle is actually, if you can believe it, a good thing. You did not struggle with sin before you were saved. You either ignored it or you justified it or pretended that it wasn't really a problem. But now that you're a Christian, you realize that something is off and and sin makes you uncomfortable and you fight it. It proves that there's not just Adam inside of you. It proves that you're also in Christ. You're taken out of Adam and now you struggle and you fight with this sin. It's a good thing. It proves that there is signs of life, but it doesn't make it any easier, does it? It's a frustrating place that we find ourselves. Romans 7, frustrating chapter. And it ends with a groan of frustration. Look at 24. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. With these words, we've come to the threshold of Romans chapter eight. We're on the brink. Paul has set up a tension, and so we wanna find out how is Paul going to get himself out of this tension? He's kinda locked himself up like Houdini, and we go, all right, Paul, how are you gonna reconcile this? We're victorious now in seven, though we can't find the, the answers Let me ask a question first. How do you resolve the tension when you find yourself in these frustrating moments? Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? What do you do? Do you just numb the pain? Try to forget about it and hope that God doesn't notice? Or do you double down and work harder? You're like, okay, my 5 a.m. quiet time isn't working, so I'm gonna do a 4 a.m. quiet time. I've gotta work harder now to be perfect before before the Lord. Do you begin to doubt your salvation? Maybe that's where some of you are right now, this tension that you feel. I'm not even a Christian. Let's see how Paul resolves the tension in Romans chapter eight. Here's what he'll do. He's gonna flood the believers in the glorious light of the gospel. He begins Romans eight with these words, no condemnation. And he ends Romans eight with the words, no separation. And for 39 consecutive verses, Paul will beat the drum and load on promise after promise after promise to weary and exhausted and discouraged believers. 
Now, the first thing I want you to notice when you walk in to Romans chapter eight, it is a completely different landscape. The struggle has been immediately reframed from you versus the flesh. Did you remember how we left Romans seven? So then it's my mind, it's my fight versus the flesh. All of a sudden in chapter eight, we don't hear that word anymore. It's not me versus my sin. It's suddenly God working on my behalf. And that's a really good thing because guess what? God wins. It's the Holy Spirit fighting in you now. Now, do you remember what I've been saying about the gospel these last two weeks in Romans? Just a very simple framework of the gospel. You cannot rise up to God But God came down to do what you could not do. Romans 1 through 3, you were helpless before you were saved. You were were lost and had no hope. But in Romans 3 and 4, Jesus came down and did what you could not do. We find that same truth and that same principle at work now that you're saved. In Romans chapter 7, I try to obey God with everything that I have, but you cannot do it. And so now God sends his spirit third person of the Trinity, to do what you cannot do. This is profound. If I had to boil down the chapter in Romans 8 to a single statement, it would be this. You are going to make it. God will see you through to the very end. This is not like a hopeful rah-rah encouragement, like you can do it, guys. Keep trying a little harder. Overcome Romans 7 by just a little more effort. No, 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 that's that's not the message you get at all. The message you get is you're going to make it. It's going to happen. How do we know that? Well, the Spirit will provide three things to you along the way. And if you can believe it, they just get better and better and better. And it's wonderful. These are stunning promises of how the Holy Spirit is helping you in your fight. This will form the outline. Let's look at this. The first one, the first third of the book, of the chapter, I should say, the Spirit gives you life. There truly is freedom in the kingdom. Why? Because the Spirit grants it to you. Second, the middle chunk. The Spirit assures you of your adoption. He speaks a new identity over you. And then the final third, the Spirit helps you in your weakness. Brilliant promises. Let's look at the first one. First, the Spirit gives you life. Look at the first verse in Romans chapter 8. This is written for the frustrated believer limping out of Romans chapter 7. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Look at the first verse. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Perhaps the greatest sentence in the greatest chapter of the Bible. If you are in Christ, listen to me, brothers and sisters. If you are in Christ, the judgment day is not looming for you. There's not a day where you have to give an account. There's not a day, like it's not happening today. The judgment is behind you. It has already happened all the way back on the cross. That is where your judgment day was fully meted out and and you don't have any judgment waiting on you. There's no judgment today. Do you understand that? You are not condemned in the future and you are not condemned now. And I know what you're thinking. Like, listen, if you only knew what I've done, even on the way to church this morning, even last night, If you knew who I was, you wouldn't be saying this. But I want you to pay attention to what the verse does not say. It does not say this. There is therefore now no reason for condemnation. There's a thousand reasons for condemnation and you can list them all out if you want to, but you need to immediately remind yourself that all of those were paid for on the cross. It doesn't say there's no reason. It says there is therefore now no condemnation. It has been paid for. Who would condemn you? God, 
but he's not. Christ Jesus is not. Look at verse, I want you to sneak a peek at the end of the chapter here. We'll read it here in a little bit, but look, just peek down to Romans 8.34. Who's to condemn you? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Do you know that Jesus is in heaven praying for you? He's not in heaven with his arms crossed going, all right, it's a Saturday night. I know what you do on Saturday nights. Don't do it again. Oh, Frank, you did it again. <laughs> Come on, when are you gonna get over it? You better get to church tomorrow because I have a word for you. <laughs> That's not what Jesus is doing in heaven. Oh my goodness, I dropped my water. My wife warned me. She said, you're gonna knock your water bottle over. And I did. <sighs> um, he's in heaven praying for you. Come to church, I have a message for you. There's no condemnation. Stop beating yourself up. There's no condemnation. I don't condemn you. I died for you. That's the message from Jesus to you this morning. Do you hear that? This truth will change your life. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that most of our troubles are due to the failure to realize the truth of this verse. You came into church this morning with a mountain of evidence against you. You've sinned. All of us have sinned. And your enemy loves to recount that. And maybe when we were singing that song, there is freedom in the kingdom. Maybe you were just trying to listen to all those sins that you've committed. Listen, there's freedom for you. There truly is freedom for you. The word of God speaks over you. You've been forgiven. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is an invitation to live into the freedom of God. And we're gonna find out over the next few verses how. Paul will show us. Let me look at verse two. How to live in the freedom of the kingdom. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Remember, we couldn't rise up, but he did it. He came down for you by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And this is the key right here. Who walk. Romans 4, Romans 6, Romans 8. This is a key metaphor. Who walk, not in the power of the flesh, not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. In these verses, we find that the key to the Christian life, I want you to hear this. I want you to think about this for the rest of your life because it will change your life. The key to the Christian life is to walk in the spirit. This is a profound New Testament theme. It's all over. If you wanna study it further, go to, look, go to Galatians chapter five and Paul will really elaborate that battle between flesh and spirit and how to walk in the spirit. But he gives us a hint here in Romans chapter eight. We walk with the Spirit by how? By setting our minds according to things of the Spirit. Setting our minds on things of the Spirit. Now, there are a billion and one things that compete for your attention. I don't know if y'all get it, but I get my, my uh, screen report every Sunday morning, like right during the worship time. I don't know if it comes in your phones on Sundays, but there's just a thousand things competing for my attention all day long. But the, the, the key to the Christian life is training our minds to focus on the Spirit and the things of the Spirit, setting the dial of your mind to Him. In fact, verse 12, if you want to read that in Romans chapter 8, actually says it's your duty. You're a debtor. If you've been redeemed into a life of freedom, that doesn't mean that you get to indulge in your flesh. That means that now you are a slave to God and you have an obligation and a duty to put to death your sinful deeds and to live according to the Spirit. And I can just see you going, oh, no. 
But listen to me, this is the burden of the Christian life, is to let your mind gravitate to the throne of grace and to be in a relationship with the triune God and to work yourself into, just to, to be part of that wonderful, joyful, loving and giving and patient and peaceful relationship that God has within the Trinity right now, to be there. That's the burden of the Christian life. Every hour, every, every moment of every hour of every day, we're putting our mind on the things of the Spirit. And so if you're not surrounding yourself with people that'll point you to that, Find, find friends that will. If you're not burying your head in the word of God, do it. Love the Lord, love the word, memorize the Bible. To, to set the mind on the flesh is death. To set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. That's the first point. The spirit gives you life. He brings freedom to your lives. If you're a frustrated Christian and you walked into this room ashamed by your sin, I want you to listen carefully to Romans chapter eight. You are going to make it. God will see you through. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Second point, here we go. It gets better. I'm, I'm telling you, everyone is just gonna get better. The Spirit assures you of your adoption. As you walk with the Spirit, He will remind you who you are now. We just sang a song, Who You Say I Am. In Romans 8, the Spirit will tell you who you are. That song is grounded in the word. Look at verse 14. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery. It's really interesting. When you came into the Christian faith, you're obliged to follow Jesus, but it's not a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children heirs, Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is an amazing picture here. The spirit of God is assuring you that you are a child of God adopted into his, his family. Now, this is really important because a lot of Paul's metaphors for salvation are a bit clinical. Take justification. I mean, you can't, you can't think of the Christian life without the, the, the metaphor of justification, the doctrine, I should say, of justification by faith. But it pictures a courtroom, a judge declaring you and there's a legal document and you are, you're just righteous before God. But here's what Romans 8 does. It takes us out of the courtroom and into the living room. The, the assurance that God gives you is also emotional. It's not just verified on a document that's somewhere in a filing cabinet in the back room in heaven somewhere. Your assurance is, is given to you in the, in the loving embrace of a father. Emotional assurance. This is available to you. I want you to think about a few of the benefits of adoption. What it does when you realize that you are a child of God. First, it gives you security. You no longer have to worry about the future. A slave works hard, but has no, no security for the future. It, it, you, you, there's just nothing that you hope for. You don't know how it's all gonna pan out. That's a spirit of slavery. Adopted children have a different outlook. Everything that belongs to the Father will one day be yours. Actually, it is now yours. Look at Ephesians chapter one. You have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And it's all yours because you've been adopted. It's brilliant. But adoption also gives us intimacy with God. Through the Spirit, we cry out, Abba, Father. 
That's a very simple word, Abba. It's not translated any differently. That's how it is in the original, Abba. You know why? Because that's how little kids learn to say their daddy's name, Abba. You think that's beneath you to pray like that? That's how Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Jews wouldn't dare pray like this. They, you know, they understood God as Father, but they would never pray like this. But um, the spirit of adoption brings us into the presence of God, Abba, Father. Is this how you approach God in your prayers? Like this intimacy with him? Do you pray to a concept or an idea? Sometimes I think this is where like studying the Trinity completely transforms your life. Because sometimes if you're not careful, you just have this, this kind of a, a vague theological essence that you're praying to. It's not how the Bible teaches you how to pray. The Bible teaches you to pray to Abba, Father. It's very warm and it gives us intimacy with the Lord. So these are a couple of the benefits of adoption. But notice what adoption does not give you. It does not take you out of a life of suffering and insulate you from the pain of the world. It's not a benefit of adoption. Did you catch that little disclaimer at the end of 17? You were probably hoping I wasn't gonna catch that part, but I'm gonna catch it, and I want you to read it. Listen to this, look. Um, you, are, you are a co-heir with Christ, what provided that you suffer with him. Your adoption into God's family does not protect you from God's pain. And Maybe you actually came into the Christian faith because somehow along the way, you, that, that's what you thought Christianity was. Like, I'll become a Christian and God will save me and I'll never have to struggle again. If that was your perception, I am terribly sorry. Truly. And if you, if you want to go searching somewhere else for that kind of a religion, really, truly, good luck to you. Because there is not another religion, philosophy, drug, that can fully insulate you from a life of pain. Listen, it's just, we live in a broken world. You will not be free from pain. You will not ins be insulated. That's part of life on a broken planet. But here's what the spirit of adoption does. He transforms your suffering. Ah, this is powerful. When you are brought into the family of God, your suffering is redeemed because it is immediately now connected to your glory, to your inheritance, to that day. Just as the, the pain of the cross is intimately connected with the glory of the resurrection. And as Paul will say just a couple of verses later in Romans 8, the pain of a mother and labor is immediately connected with the joy of a child. Your suffering is very closely related to your glory. Look at verse 18. He ties it all together. For I consider, this is truly one of my favorite verses in the Bible. And it has gotten me through some dark days. So I want you to hold on to this verse. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. I know this room is filled with unbearable suffering. You walked into this room carrying broken hearts, broken relationships. You limped in with sick and broken bodies. You carried in here frustrated plans and dreams that were crushed. I do not want to minimize your pain one bit, but I do want to give you a biblical perspective. I want you to imagine a giant scale at the front of this room, and I want to picture on this side, one by one, all of us just coming and dumping all of our pain into this side. Now, there are stories in this room, that just single stories that are enough to crush a soul. The pain in this room is immense, and if each of us were to just Pile on all of the pain. Could you imagine the weight of pain that would be in this side of the scale? 
But I want you to go to the other side of the scale now. And on this side of the scale, I want you to think about that day. Not this day, that day. When you finally see Jesus face to face and you will be like him, transformed out of these broken bodies. The glory that will be revealed in you that day will be spectacular. And I want you to drop it. It's so far the scale's kind of leaning this way. I want you to drop all of the glory in that day when I stand with all of you and all of the loved ones that we've lost in front of Jesus and his glorious, radiant face and our bodies aren't broken and our relationships that plague us right now are healed. And you sing out to him and you realize I'm singing on key and you sit down to the feast and you don't have to ask for the gluten-free menu. If you want a taste of that menu, read Isaiah 25. We get a little snapshot of the menu and it's gonna be fantastic. And we're gonna sit down. Now that day, there will be a weight of glory. Creation will be healed. You can walk up a flight of steps and go, I can breathe. And you can run and not grow weary. Never, ever, ever again. It will all be a distant past. It will be forgotten in the past. The weight of glory on that day, it like, it so far surpasses anything that's in that bucket that it's not even worth comparing. That's through the roof. Adoption transforms your suffering. How often do you think about that day? We think about that day. 1 John 3, we think about the day when we will see him and there's something about that that purifies us. Now, 1 John 3, 1. To the lost and lonely Christian, to the one that's suffering under the weight of an unbearable pain, listen to Romans chapter eight. You are going to make it. You're gonna make it. God has adopted you into his family and your inheritance is waiting. Third promise. You can believe me, it gets better. (laughs) The spirit helps you in your weakness. Pick up in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now remember, Paul is talking here to Christians who are languishing under the weight of suffering and frustration. And now he will continue with some of the most cherished verses in the entire Bible. Verse 26 says that God is committed to helping you in your weakness. How often do you try to hide your weakness? Try to compensate? Your weakness is not a liability. It's actually where God does some of his best work. Even when you're too weak, like he's not on the sideline just cheering you on in Romans 8 saying, come on, get up, go, go, go. He's actually in the field carrying you when you can't go on. God helps you in your weakness, and he's praying for you with groans that are beyond comprehension. We were talking about this verse last night at the dinner table, and one of my kids said, God doesn't do that. I hope it's as shocking to you as a little kid. God doesn't do that. Actually, he does, and Romans 8 tells us it's hard to believe that God would, the Holy Spirit would pray for you with groans that are incomprehensible. 
heard a brilliant message by Derek Thomas recently and he gave an illustration that, that recalled a similar story that I'd like to share with you to help you realize the, the weight of this. Um, last winter, our family moved houses. It wasn't a, a big move, it was just a, a half a mile. Like we went from 785 down to 298, which you think, that's easy, right? Except for the fact that you still have to load everything up in your truck and move it on down the hill, including the big heavy pianos. Has anybody moved a piano before? How do they get so heavy? I truly, I want to know, because it's like there's strings in there, but do they put lead in it? I have no idea. How does a skinny guy like me move a piano? Here's how. You call Nate Roten. You call Josh Kanoy, other buddy Josiah, my friends with large trucks and large muscles. <laughs> now, to get the piano out of my old house, we had to go down the steps of our back porch and we had to go to the back porch and go down a flight of stairs and then go down a hill to get to the truck. Um, did I mention that it was snowing? <laughs> There's at least four inches and we're moving this big giant piano. So we go to pick up the piano and we're negotiating which corners. And of course I get the side with one of those skinny little legs, right? Because that's, anyway. <laughs> so we pick it up and we're walking out the door and there's parts of the, you know, there's moments where I'm going, I think I'm contributing something. <laughs> And there are other times where I go, I know I'm not doing anything right now. <laughs> but I knew who was. My friends that were on the stairs groaning under the weight of my piano and my burden. That's the promise of the Holy Spirit to you. When you're too weak to go on, when you have a burden that you cannot carry, when you're worn out and you don't know how you're going to make it through the end of the day, you find the Spirit groaning, coming alongside you, laboring with you. You're going to make it. Why would God descend to do that? Because He's working on a project. And He's been working on this actually from before the, the day before you were born, like, he, like long before you were born, he set out on a project and he is committed to seeing you through to the very end. In verse 29 and 30, just capture this really brilliantly, this project that God has been working on. Verse 29 says that he foreknew you. Before you were born, he knew you. And then he predestined you Romans 9, 10, and 11 will actually ground this truth. You have to actually have Romans 9, 10, and 11 because Romans 8 soars to these remarkable highs and the promises are so incredible. How do you ground it? Through the doctrine of predestination. In Romans 9, 10, and 11, you can be sure. It, it, is, it is fixed. It is going to happen. Now, I know that word predestination makes some of you squeamish, and I understand philosophically it makes your head spin a little bit, but listen, I wouldn't want to walk out my front door without it. To know that God is sovereignly in control, he foreknew you, he predestined you, and then he calls you. I have a couple friends, I'm pretty sure God is calling. What do you do when God calls? You answer, you respond, and that's what you did. God called you, and when you responded, he justified you with the blood of Jesus. And then Paul says he glorified you. It's, it's in the past tense here, and it's really interesting. He's so sure of this glorification that's going to happen to you, that moment that we talked about in this side of the scale that he speaks of it in the past tense. He glorified you. God will see you through. You are going to make it. 
There is nothing in the universe that can stop him. And if you're thinking, oh, there's something, that's what the rest of Romans 8 is going to do. It will silence it. Nothing will stop God from accomplishing his purposes. As Romans 8.28 says, he is working out every detail of your life. To those who he's called, this is not just a general blanket statement. He's talking to the ones whom he has called. He's working out every detail in your life for your good. Now, this does not mean that everything that has happened to you has been good. Evil things happen. But here's what you can rest assured upon. The, the evil things that have happened to you, God is, is working it in your favor and in your good. He has a goal to make you more like Jesus. One day you will be like Jesus and that is the work of the Holy Spirit on your behalf. And so if it happened to you, God will use it for your good. If you prayed for it to happen and it did not happen, it is for your good. Do you understand that? You're praying for a job. You're praying for something to happen and it didn't happen. And you're like, where was God? He, it was for your good. Romans 8 teaches us that the spirit uh, prays according to God's will for us. J.I. Packer says it wonderfully. He fixes your prayers on the way up. And all you can see is just this little slice of, of time and you're like, give me that job, God, I want that. Please, please. And the spirit is trans, translating that. God, this is, this is what he means right here. This is what he means. And God is giving you things that are for your good because he will see you through to the very day and you will stand in front of Jesus transformed one day, complete. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Life is not a random mess for the child of God. Do you see why Romans 8 is the best chapter in the Bible? If you are in Christ, you can rest assured that God will see you through to the very end. This chapter silences every doubt we have. To the brother who walked in here feeling just beat down over sin and recounting your past, listen, he has adopted you into his family. You're, there is no condemnation. To the sister who feels like God has abandoned you, where were you on that day? What happened to you? How can I trust you? He has adopted you into his family. Church, he is working out all things together for our good. God will accomplish his purposes. I want to close this sermon by reading these last nine verses of Romans 8. If this is Mount Everest, we're at the peak. And this is just going to get to the very, very tip of that mountain. And the air is rarefied around here. And oxygen gets scarce. And I'm not going to elaborate it. I just want you to just look and soak up the views. And just see what God has done for you and what he is doing for you. You're going to make it. So let me read this together. The praise team can come on up. And I just want you to meditate on these words. Pick up in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who's raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. It's not just the spirit interceding. It's Christ interceding for you as well. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, or insert your worst fear? A diagnosis? 
World War III? Nuclear disaster? Economic meltdown? Can that finally separate you from the love of God? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, you won't blow it in the future, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord.